Hey there, everybody. This is Josh Rayner, Editor-in-Chief of DC Comics News. Are you planning on heading to Wizard World Comic Con sometime this year? Well, we have a great deal for you. If you are planning to do so, you can get 10% off your ticket purchase by using the code DCNEWS at checkout. That's D-C-N-E-W-S at checkout to save 10% off your tickets for Wizard World. And that's for any city that, uh, that they will be doing. So make sure you head over to www.wizardworld.com tickets and use the code DCNEWS for 10% off. Another Wednesday has come and gone, and that means DC Comics has released a new batch of comics for us to read, enjoy, wonder, and talk about. Which means it's time for another edition of the DC Comics News Spinner Rack. I'm your host, Seth Singleton. This is episode number seven of the DC Comics News Spinner Rack, and it's time to give that interdimensional spinner rack, the one existing right there in my imagination, just outside of reality. A big old twirl. And as I do, I can see all the comics released from this week. And as I'm looking them over and making my decision, I go ahead and pull my top five and share them with you to talk about, to share about, to wonder about. Because if a good comic story isn't making me think afterwards. Well, why is it in my top five? And now for a story that's really got me thinking. My first book for this week's edition is Deathstroke number 43, where we have finally reached the conclusion of the Terminus agenda, which has been leaping from Teen Titans to Deathstroke and back and forth. Now what's happening in this issue is that the Titans have been holding uh, a slew of criminals, some super, some not so, in the basement of Mercy Hall, a former juvenile center that has been the home base for the Teen Titans for quite some time now. And it's also been a makeshift prison as part of a plan by Damian Wayne, a.k.a. Robin, to address a unsolvable criminal issue that he believes has only one solution. Things took a twist when Damien decided that he really needed to stop playing with the small fishies and go for Deathstroke, the Terminator. Deathstroke and the other prisoners have found their way out, and they are ready to break free. But there's a problem. One, Deathstroke has already made it clear that once he's free, the only way Damien can stop him and ever stop him is to kill Slade Wilson. And two, Damien hasn't told anyone, but the project, the Terminus project, which was actually launched by Slade Wilson as part of his revenge on Robin, includes a component that Robin didn't share with the rest of the team, which is when the Terminus agenda goes into play 
a poison is released and each one of the criminals who has it will die once they've gotten so far outside of Mercy Hall. Which thankfully makes it really easy for me to go into why I decided to pick this book. To start out with, I think the challenge of Damien's trading and past creates uh, mixtures of conflict with the Teen Titans team he hopes to lead. Mostly because by taking on the role of leadership with the Teen Titans, he's following in the footsteps of those who've gone before him. Whether it's Tim Drake or Dick Grayson. Either way, doing so means following the code that Batman has passed on and required of each of his Robins. And that has been an issue for Damien, who is a assassin trained by the veritable League of Assassins since childhood, and who in many instances has shown that he's willing to use death as the best solution when the others seem too complicated, too difficult, or simply not worth his time. Second is the fact that there is this really just funny, ugly grudge between Damien and Slade. Slade's gotten the better hand of Damien, and it gets under Damien's skin in a way that makes it easy for Slade to essentially play mind games. And watching this sort of struggle, I think would be the best word, this struggle that's going on between both of them, mostly, I think, on the side of Damien, is really interesting because... I think it points uh, a bit of a bright light for anyone, myself included, who's ever had a conflict with somebody else. And sometimes the conflict is about that person specifically, and other times it's about the conflict that that person creates with me or others, and how that actually points to an issue that is unresolved from the past, much like the issue that's going on in the past few issues with Slade and Damien, to which Slade has, up until this point, believed that it's because of conflict with Batman, his ideology, and how it directly goes against everything Damien was raised and taught since childhood. Which makes it easy to move right into my favorite parts, and starting on the story side, one of my favorite parts is when Slade figures out that Damien is not mad at his father, Batman, Bruce Wayne, but instead at his mother, and two uh, flashbacks, one showing Talia's disappointment when Damien is knocked down by a group of attackers, and then later when Damien is able to defeat those attackers and succeed, only to find that his mother either no longer cares or for whatever reason is no longer watching. Which then leads to my next favorite part. And this is a major spoiler. I mean, you'll know about it soon enough if you keep up regularly with titles like Deathstroke, simply because it appears the next issue will be addressing this as well. But simply put, Slade has been telling Damien that he has to kill Deathstroke. And when finally given the chance to square off, Damien hesitates. And in that moment, Red Arrow takes out Slade with an arrow to the eye. It actually sets up perfectly one of my favorite moments on the art side, which is the series of panels when the arrow first strikes Slade's eye. 
the next panel, which feels like a pause of recognition, both by Slade's body and I think the reader, or at least it did for me, followed by the sensation and movement in the next panel of Slade slowly slinking to the ground. Now, on another note, I actually find this uh, to be one of my favorite parts, simply because I've read a previous comic book that was about Deathstroke the Terminator. And it also involved the Titans. This was back in the 90s during a storyline where Donna Troy was giving birth to a uh, godling who would eventually be Earth's greatest uh, terror. And during one of those parts of that storyline, which jumped between Titans, Deathstroke Terminator, and I think one other book, I can't be uh, positive on that, but in that storyline, Slade is pinned down by overwhelming odds, and while fighting them off, two machine guns, one in each hand, shirtless, Slade has, I believe, a heart attack or stroke of some kind, and dies, and then later is resurrected. So while I feel like there could be a greater degree of finality with an arrow to the eye, I also know that essentially Slade's programming and the serum that gives him not only extraordinary strength but extraordinary brain power is always a factor in the possibility that he could A, be resurrected or B, not actually be dead. Or maybe the term should be finally dead. As is well known within comic books, no character actually stays dead for too long. When it comes to my least favorite parts of the story, overall, so much action going on, it was difficult to really feel like there was uh, any moments that lacked authenticity. However, there is a moment early on when the prisoners are trying to make a decision about what to do or where to go. There's an open door that Swerve, one of the criminals being held captive, says they need to leave through, to which both Black Mask and Brother Blood claim it's an obvious trap, one designed to trigger whatever fail-safes they have in place. And during this time, Swerve points out that she is not like them, that she's different, and that the one crime she committed is the one crime that Damien caught her performing, and she's been held prisoner for it ever since. Now, her story feels like a strong component to build on, but then when Atomic Skull, who's also being held captive, mentions that he too had been giving up his old ways and trying to make a new turn, he's teased by Gizmo, another villain, and then within a page is firing his power blasts at Mr. Wally West, Kid Flash. I don't know how anyone else feels, but in that moment I question just how committed to a new path Atomic Skull really was, because in that moment, he didn't seem very serious about it, and he sure seemed really comfortable just blasting away, not minutes after talking about how he'd changed things, and if it wasn't for these darn kids who ruined it for him, he'd still be pursuing his new life of nonviolence. And for some reason, I smell a fish. 
just a really stinky fish. Maybe he was telling the truth, but based on his actions, I have a lot of doubts. With so much action going on, it's also difficult to pick out any moment in the art that actually feels like it falls on the, the weaker side. However, on page 18, top panel, there's a moment where the sorceress Jin is moving down to uh, make an appearance to Brother Blood and Atomic Skull. And when she does, you can see the back of her head and back of her feet as she's approaching the faces of Brother Blood and Atomic Skull, who are very close in perspective, looking up at her as she begins floating down towards them. And between her foot and the weird position of her hair kind of spilling down the back of her neck and the way her neck is exposed, it's a little weird. It's just proportionally a bit confusing. And I looked it over and thought to myself, if I didn't know what was going on in the panel before, this panel, just as a standalone, is difficult to perceive and actually understand in any way. Now, ordinarily, I might just put this one around a four. Except for the ending with the assassination or death of Slade Wilson. And the death of Wilson is a twist because with a greater degree of sort of heightened scrutiny on the part of readers and their knowledge that characters can just come back from the dead, I feel like there's this expectation for... Slade Wilson's death to either hold a certain degree of permanence or to, in some way, um, demonstrate a new tact on describing just how it is some can actually come back from the dead. Or, if it's just become so commonplace that for superheroes, death is nothing more than a revolving door. Nonetheless, this introduction raised the stakes for me and also my value of this issue. And I'm going to lock it in a solid 4.5 for my book number one of this week's edition of The Spinner Rack. For my book number two of this week, I couldn't turn away from picking Batman number 70. So let's start with what's been happening. Essentially, Batman has been held prisoner by Bane, who is working with Thomas Wayne on a long-range plan to break the Batman. During the last few issues, Batman has been trapped in a concoction of Scarecrow's design in a tank where he has been forced to relive painful, tragic memories intermixed with hopeful, beautiful ones, all designed to weaken Batman's attention and to also cloud his judgment with the many conflicts that exist not only in his nature but his history. Starting out with my favorite parts on the story side, I really love the introduction with Maximilian or Maxi Zeus, at least he appears to be. It's harder to tell when he's just in his Arkham Asylum garb. But he's quoting Dante Alighieri's Divine Comedy. And as he does, Batman experiences this montage of 
figures. Constantine, Professor Pig, his twisted brother, the question, and the cat wearing the Superman outfit from previous memories when she and Lois Lane had a bit of a bachelorette girls' night out. And it's in this moment that Batman breaks free. And what I love next about this story is the way that Batman proceeds to just move through the issue strategically, methodically, unflinchingly, taking down each one of his, well, I guess rogues might be a uh, a good description when it comes to the cast of Batman villains. They certainly are a specific and unique bunch. First, Batman takes out the Riddler, Calendar Man, and on and on. And as he does, each villain gets a moment to sort of be in the spotlight, to move on to stage and occupy the attention of the reader and the viewer. And yet through it all, Batman is talking not to the person he's fighting, but out loud to Bane, describing how Bane is clearly not learning from the past, that Batman has broken Bane, humiliated him, crushed him so many different times, and that he is disappointed, if not annoyed, at the fact that Bane's only response to all that is to lock up Batman in a prison of his own memories, and that he wants Bane to know that there are no nightmares that threaten or terrorize Batman, because compared to them all, he sees himself, Batman, as the great, if not the greatest, nightmare. And that's why when he does choose to engage with one of his villains as he's moving through Arkham, the exchanges are very cold and dismissive. For example, when he comes across uh, Freeze, he speaks to him on a scientific level and suggests just how many times has Freeze fired a gun like the one he's holding at Batman. Statistically, how many times has he ever gotten the upper hand? And this is very nicely juxtaposed with a scene with Batman's most famous ventriloquist, Nemesis. And an interaction between the man behind Scarface, who is talking with Bane and describing all of the villains Batman has either taken down or is approaching to take down. And during this exchange, Bane asks if what is occurring now is similar to the experience of manipulating a marionette to pull its strings and make it perform the motions that you want it to. And this is nicely followed by a scene when Batman faces off with Scarecrow and points out that he knows that it was Scarecrow's formula that was being used on him in the tank and that he owes Scarecrow personally for that. And yet at the same time it's Scarecrow who's trying to warn Batman that he needs to escape, he needs to run, he needs to give up, and he should surrender, because unlike Batman, Scarecrow knows what's really going on. And finally, Batman faces off with the last villain to cross his paths, and that's Two-Face, 
who answers Batman both as Harvey Dent and as Two-Face. And that provides uh, (laughs) some unpleasant responses from the Batman, who pins Harvey up against the wall and begins telling him that he needs him to deliver a message to Bane, that he would have loved to have talked, but he's tired, and he's just woken up, so he's going to go home, but he's tired, and he's going to get in his car and go to his home in his city, and then he's going to come back tomorrow with an army, and then he says that he and Bane are going to talk. And that segment where Maxi had been quoting Dante continues on these final pages. And the last two panels, Maxi quotes the famous line, All hope abandon, ye who enter here. Great storytelling overall. And just a really nice thread line through this part one of The Fall and the Fallen. Now, I'd love to say that it's easy to move right into my favorite art segments, but... Honestly, there are a lot, and I feel that if I just start going through them one by one, that I'm either cheapening the experience or failing in my pursuit of naming a favorite. (laughs) However, among a few, Batman's face-off with Scarecrow and the ominous way he appears behind him, green clouds of smoke and Scarecrow's eyes wide with fear and recognition. Also, a great square shot with Batman in the middle facing off against Solomon Grundy on his left and Amygdala on his right. And the way that this wraps up, it it's something I can attempt to describe, but I simply won't do justice. But the way that Batman perseveres through each villain It feels like each one is this gorgeous storyboard that's been so carefully planned and structured that at its conclusion, all I can do is think to myself, well, if you have a series of masterpiece vignettes, at the end you'll have a collection, (laughs) which in itself is a masterpiece. Now, on my least favorite side of this story, one of the two things that probably stands out for me is the contrast between the way the different villains respond to Batman and the way that they either charge forward, swinging with all their might, or face him reluctantly and are happy, or at least relieved, when it's quickly over. I found this most noticeable in the scene with Mr. Freeze. And after Batman has broken down the different ways that statistically this is simply not going to work out for Mr. Freeze, he proceeds to knock him out with one punch while asking the question, isn't this easier? And the way that Freeze seems to struggle with a stutter and even the ability to pull the trigger, tells me that while he performed his task, there was very little willingness or desire involved. And I thought about the fact that for most of these villains, the idea is that without the outside world rush of freedom and the sort of thrill that comes with taking on a big plan and taking on a big character like Batman, that something is lost when... (laughs) They're trying to do 
that thing they want to do, which is to defeat Batman. And they're placed in the constraints of a place like Arkham Asylum, a place that has already broken them, and I'm sure it doesn't instill the sense of freedom that they get when they are outside its walls and able to move freely in a way that probably terrifies people and energizes them, but somehow can't be matched when they are facing off with Batman here inside of Arkham. In the end, I actually struggled to find any weak notes on the art side, or even least favorite parts in the art for this issue. So many great things were at play, and so masterfully done as the setting continued to change. Whether it's the green light emitting from the tank where Batman was held and the way it shades the room that he breaks out of when he faces off with Riddler or a face-off against another rogue with a series of windows and dark shadows and lights spilling through those windows as Batman begins to charge. The red tint when facing off against Mr. Freeze, or the green cloudy mist that creates a hue when Batman is fighting Scarecrow. Overall, I, I, I looked as closely as I could. I tried, I examined, and I struggled. In fact, the one piece that caught my attention was the top panel on page 18 and the bottom panel on page 19, in which the art felt, well, not as detailed as it did in the other panels and yet interestingly without that detail both the panel at the top of page 18 and the one at the bottom of page 19 feel more like classic Batman especially with his gray suit and the way the lines seem to echo a a classic version of Batman and a more golden age style of storytelling. I was more than happy to give this title a solid four. I felt that in many ways it it delivered a a strong statement from the Batman and also hid a series of hints, clues about the coming threat and danger from Bane. And while it's difficult to build up to a signature milestone like issue number 75, with issue number 70, I felt this was careful, thoughtful, and methodical, and one of the reasons why this story, which could have fallen apart very easily, worked extremely well from the first page all the way to the last. Which is why Batman number 70 received a solid 4 from me, and which is why your score is something I'm really curious to hear. And away from the nightmare that Batman describes in Batman number 70, we move into my third book from the Spinner Rack, Green Lantern number 7. Green Lantern number 7 offers less of a nightmare, but certainly more of a fantasy world. And this is really intriguing because so many elements about this book are based within fantasy and even though it's picking up where we left off from number six which was Hal had basically found a way to gain the trust of the Black Stars 
and then at the moment when he uncovered their plan to build this ultimate resource, ultimate weapon, ultimate design, and that his ring was part four and it couldn't be unlocked. Well, that's when Hal called on the Green Lanterns to give him all the power from Oa and the main power battery in an attempt to overcome this terrible, terrible destruction they were going to unleash. And in the process, the issue ended with the ring floating in space and a question raised as to what happened to Hal, who had received a memorial and a recognition as a hero who had given his life in a noble act. And yet, the ring floating in space presented the question of what happens next. Now, my theory had been that we go inside the ring. And without being the one to just drop the spoiler this way, <laughs> that's essentially what we do. Um, it's not, it's actually this beautiful mystery that's folded into the entire process of the storytelling. So really simply, that's not only what's happening, but that's part of why I picked it. There was so much that I enjoyed about the possibility of the world that would be I guess living, creating, created or existing within the ring and what it would be like to see. And we got a hint of it at the end of issue number six when Hal meets a stranger and he clearly um, is a resident there while Hal is a visitor and points out that he doesn't really know where he is or what he's doing or how he got there. But he needs to go to Emerald Sands under the direction of his guide, this kind of interesting character from the world who calls himself Merwoden, which remind me of Merlin, but this book eventually reveals that that is not who it is, and it's a character from the legacy of Green Lantern. And it also represents something that I really liked about the book, which is that I, I've seen already, and I enjoyed the way Grant Morrison pulled very, very powerful pieces of history from the Green Lantern legacy and sort of backstories that have always come to exist, taking characters that have a history, especially for longtime readers, and pull at that history by bringing them into the story. And Merwoden is one of those examples. So in this story, let me go ahead and just move into my favorite parts. And it's a storytelling device that's used through the art. So I get to blend them a little bit here, uh, simply by saying that the presentation of the book allows for the shaping of the narrative, which is really interesting because it's told through verse. And the entire thing has a mixture of this very smooth, poetic, and structured storytelling process. It almost reminds you of the high noble uh, verse, which was considered to be uh, essentially one of the, the royal presentations of, of storytelling and song from like a, a classic bard. And it also interposes this really neat sort of internal dialogue by a character who is very interesting and refers to herself as Pengower, which I sort of enjoyed as well. If you continue into the King Arthur Mythos Merlin idea, there is a character, a couple of characters, whose names begin with P. And I won't 
attempt to butcher them right now just from my memory. But coming across them in these references added to that fantasy, and that was something I really enjoyed from the storytelling because I feel like, for the most part, I feel as though it it adds to the atmosphere and it brings the degree of authenticity. It's part of that world-building that you hear so much about. And doing it in this way creates uh, a very concrete world, a very physical world, a world you can kind of hold in your hands. And that makes it really also easy to move into the art side of things. And I might blend a little bit back and forth because as I think about it, there's so many other parts of the story that I enjoy, such as who Pengelwer really is and how she relates to Merwiden and everything that occurs within this world, the rules that exist and why they exist and essentially what their, you know, responsibility is to keeping this world in the state that it's in and also what's keeping it from becoming better than the state that it was in, which is referenced as well, this idea that things weren't always as bad. And when they were good, there was a lot to be enjoyed and um, to be thankful for. So um, one other element that I want to remember right before I move into the art as well is this concept of Pengerwer being a a bit of a outsider, someone who has found a way to time the movements of these creatures known as the ministers, these half-blind, mute, and somewhat deaf creatures who can sense her and others like her and who are searching this vast land trying to find her. And it's this process that she has developed that makes it so difficult for her to lend a hand to Hal Jordan when she discovers him and to become part of his quest to reach the Emerald Sands and uncover the mystery that ties closer to what exactly Merwiden is and how he and Pengawer relate to the world that he's in that I believe is the power ring but in many ways is so much more than that and it's great that I can give a spoiler that we're in the power ring and yet at the same time not have to disclose these great elements that still make the story so much fun to enjoy even when you know where it's taking place because it's also about the world in there and all the rules that exist within it and why it is that they are so important to what Hal has to do in order to uncover the answers he's looking for. Now, in my best attempt to commit to my favorite part on the art side, I really want to point to the introduction and how right from the first page we get these really powerful symbols, not only for me in the shape of imagery that's familiar to the uh well, fans of the Green Lantern to those who have kind of paid attention to the pattern and design of the Green Lantern uh, uniform, of the ring itself. And right from the opening page and this sort of cool blue head, which feels like a an Oz wizard reference, and the, the shaping of these these kind of borders for each page that provided me with that first thought that this might be taking place inside of the ring. And then also with this idea of how that shaping creates part of that world building, how right from that beginning moment, 
is this idea of being locked within something and then how it mirrors so well the storytelling about Pengo were locked in a pattern and feeling trapped and chased and how this imagery helps to compound that idea. Which then makes it really fun when she and Hal are able to break past it, get closer to the center of the mystery, and uncover, for the most part, all these sort of pieces of the puzzle, but also these clues to a riddle. And as they uncover and discover, Hal has to break a rule that's less unspoken, (laughs) but more a rule about what is spoken and not spoken, and how because of that, when he breaks that rule, he's actually able to answer the question of what is necessary to change the world he's in, and also what is necessary for him to save it, so that he can also gain his freedom from it. Art that does this, that creates this mirrored relationship that demonstrates through all of its best elements how it is that storytelling can be shaped through this lens is is really just a, a really great a great experience that I, I have to respect immediately the relationship that feels so just I guess symbiotic between Liam Sharp and Grant Morrison in this respect. It's it's almost like they made a commitment to a design plan early on. And it goes a bit beyond just the whole idea of this being a police procedural. Because this book alone clearly is not just a police procedural. But it points to an idea of what milestones, touchstones they wanted to include as they as they shape these stories and these arcs that go with it and also what intentions they wanted to make when it came to making those important parts of the story and eventually in my mind the the framework for these stories and I really enjoyed so much uh it's really hard to move from that into least favorite parts I want to and yet at the same time I felt the story while I knew in some parts where I was and and what the story might be about, the way that it was told to me felt fresh and new, not only through the verse, which was a concern, but I feel was so well executed that I can't argue with it. And, And then, really, just with the way that it introduces these great, as I mentioned before, these great elements from history. Now, it might be something that's a little elusive or esoteric for uh, fans who aren't familiar with this deep history, but I love it when these elements are used so well that as a reader, as someone who's enjoying the story, I want to learn more. I want to go back to the story when it was discovered how Merwin became a part of this ring world and why he's there and what he means for Hal. And I couldn't find any problems with the art. I felt that each concept that was used to tell the story was intentional in many ways, as I'd mentioned before with the positives. It was storyboarding. And there were really no moments when I found myself thinking, oh, this this doesn't really play. I feel like there were so many great small moments that 
really, I'm just going to end up using this uh, least favorite parts to talk more about my most favorite parts. And that just seems silly. So I'm going to knock this one right up to the top. This one gets a solid five from me. I, I really love this book. Um, I'm going to get a copy <laughs> uh, of like maybe six different ones and give them away as gifts and really just enjoy the fact that there's this piece of storytelling that in one book does so much more than just tell a comic book tale and it was really a pleasure to read and I would love to hear your thoughts especially if they were as happy joyful and thankful and more importantly if they weren't because maybe I just have rosy glasses on and I need you to set me straight. Tag me on social media. Tag DC Comics News. Let us know. We're doing this as part of a bigger conversation. And what makes it fun is hearing what you have to say. So maybe it's a theme I should have paid more attention to when I was introducing. Or maybe that still, in my mind, would have been tipping the hand just a bit too much. Because moving into my fourth book is another opportunity to tell a fantastical st story. Or a fantastical tale. Harley Quinn number 61 really offers up a new perspective on RPG storytelling, on fantasy world storytelling, and it's an interesting contrast to many of the things that I saw in Green Lantern number 7. What I love about this issue of Harlequin, Harley Quinn number 61, is that it opens with Selena and Harley and a fun guest playing a game, a board game no less, while Selena drinks wine and gets somewhat annoyed. <laughs> As the game continues, it's revealed that it's cursed and that they have been transported to a magical, wonderful land known as the Kingdom of Gotham. Harley is in a straitjacket facing off with Hugo Strange before she proceeds to kick his butt. And he lets her know that she is now heretic Quinn. And from here, the story continues off. So why I picked it? Well, I don't always get the chance to check out a Harley Quinn story, but when I was reading through this and saw that they were taking a similar risk as I read in Green Lantern number 7 with a fantasy scope, I really thought that this was a nice opportunity to point to many of the ways that this book does more than what it might be expected of it. That it continues to offer up stories that often I hear about more than I read. And that upon the retelling or the sharing, I learn just how well the writers and the team have worked to make Harley Quinn more than one note, more than a character who leapt off the screen and into the pages, and to give her an identity that relates closer to the challenge that must come from being the former, if not current, if not on-again, off-again love interest with Joker, and also to try and find her way back to a closer or closer to the right side of doing things, the hero side of the world, even though her nature so often is tilted so that her natural desires are to do the opposite. 
Now, I've already hinted at it, but what I really enjoyed about the storytelling here was that by great contrast to the Green Lantern story, the Kingdom of Gotham is an RPG world in which Harley is the only one who actually does remember. She doesn't have amnesia. She knows exactly where she came from, and she wants to get back there. And in that process, she's willing to discover as much as she can about who the Sorceress Queen, who's actually the Enchantress, and the other players are, and what needs to be done to get them back home. She meets a very interesting version of Selina, who is referencing her imprisonment as the dethroning of her right to the throne by the Enchantress, and her questioning of how this could have happened. And I love that the elements that create the world for this story are very concrete in many ways. Victorian-slash-looking houses, um, characters dressed in Renaissance-style attire, whether it's Riddler, Selina, or an interesting cast known as the Gotham Knights. And that moves really nicely into the art portions that I really enjoyed and consider my favorite parts with this book. Because the Gotham Knights could just be a concept. And it could be just each character, <laughs> as they're described here. Nightwing, Anarchy the Druid, Silver Saint Cloud, Harvey the Bullock, and Ace the Werewolf. They could have simply just given them cute clothing. But instead, each one of these characters appears very well thought out. They have uh, imagery that is a very thoughtful homage to RPG characters, whether it's the knight, uh, the sorcerer, the archer, Silver St. Cloud, Harvey Bullock, who seems more like an ogre slash big strong guy character, and then, of course, the helpful companion in Ace the Werewolf. And the design for these feel so considerate and so well-planned that it begins to feel more like a labor of love with each page you turn, as though this is a fan of RPG gaming, or even more importantly, a fan of storytelling who believes that RPG games do not get the respect they deserve, and that maybe either as a storyteller or as someone who witnessed great storytellers in those games knows just how well they can be told when thought and care and not just parody or laughter or irony are are used to create the stories that the characters must complete. Now that doesn't mean that there isn't an entire other host of characters, including the Rogue Enforcers, which I'm going to allow you to read about on your own, but it's a fun cast of five. They all work for the Enchantress, and clearly they're going to be a foil for Miss Harla Quinn, or Heretic Quinn, as she is being called now, and their mission to escape if they possibly can. I'm thinking they're going to have to find a way to team up with the Gotham Knights or get the Gotham Knights to help them in some way, in order to defeat the rogue enforcers. And 
it's a really great imagery here where you have the sense right away just from a, a quick roll call glance at the rogue enforcers that they're the complete antithesis to the Gotham Knights. For all the Gotham Knights, dark, cold, and cool, the uh, rogue enforcers are red, glowy, and tinged with this sort of like anger, danger. And that feels so emblematic of what are the common good and evil forces or right or wrong forces in RPG games. Now, that doesn't mean that this attempt didn't have some areas of concern for me. On the least favorite parts of the story, I actually struggled a lot with what I felt was a heavy-handed use of the dialogue. Some of it felt valuable, some of it was fun, other parts felt a little needless or expositionary, and I know that there's a lot that needs to be revealed in order for not only Harlequin or Heretiquin, but the people she's asking to help her to understand in order to see what the rules are in this universe and, and what they can do and what they need to do in order to solve them or to end the game in a way that allows them all to escape back to the world they were in. Of course, this is the Enchantress's world, so this is going to take some time. But some of the exposition, it was a challenge because at some point, what really is the the biggest need for the reader is to understand what's going on and what needs to be done to solve it. And when there's these interruptions or delays, or there's a process to doing that, if at any point you're trying to skip ahead to get to the meaty parts, that's a challenge because it means that the intent of the writer to, to point you into things that it, it feels are important to you, you're not paying attention to. And I made a point of sticking with it. But being aware of that desire was a concern for me because anytime you lose that connection with your reader, you struggle with the opportunity to get it back, even when you get to the parts that they would consider the meteor side of the storytelling. And when it comes to the art, I really enjoyed overall the different tones and approaches, and as I mentioned, the contrast between the blue and the red from the Gotham Knights to the uh, counterparts that they will be soon facing off against with and who work for the Enchantress. But there were also moments when the cartoon, the over-the-top, the, the just-a-bit-too-dramatic seemed to blur what were really promising notes and feel disconnected from the great pages like the cast of the Roger and Forces, or later when there's an attack and the Queen is forced to run and there's this great splash page on like page 19. And those moments are lovely, but compared with the previous pages, they feel like sometimes two different books. And, and that's not something that I, I want to feel pulling me out. But for all of the high notes, these few notes were not enough to pull my score below a 3.5. And I really think that once this sort of rougher patch has passed, the next issue could really pick up in a fast pace and developing way that could either lead to the end of a three-part arc or the degree that they want to stretch this story out. Right now, I felt that there were 
a few issues that got in the way. But if you won't let them trip you up, then this is a book you're going to enjoy at the end and look forward to the next issue of. As I mentioned, I gave it a 3.5. Do you think I was right? Do you think your score is higher or lower? I'm just going to have to guess until you go ahead and share it with us here at DC Comics News. Now, my fifth and final book for the Spinner Rack this week is Justice League number 23. It's chapter four of the Sixth Dimension storyline, and this one has me coming back issue after issue because it keeps finding a way to draw in my reader's eye and not let it go until the very end and leave me hungry for the next issue. Now, when last we left off in Justice League number 22, things were not looking good. Superman trapped in a dark dimension that somehow has just enough light to keep him alive, but if he keeps trying to escape, he'll die. Uh, The World Forger, or World Forger, is essentially the one who's banished him there, and in the process, he's taken the rest of the Justice League and dumped them off onto a prison planet, which, uh, it just really stacks the odds. And it's not a positive story to jump in, and it doesn't have as many high notes as I might like to see, or maybe as readers are hoping for, as the story continues to reveal just how far the dark parts can really get for this team. Why I picked it. I feel that there's uh, a need for the Justice League to demonstrate what they're doing in the midst of all of the chaos that many feel they're the most responsible for. And in this story, we get the chance to see and hear just what it is that the future might be able to warn them about and just how many things there are about the World Forger that they need to continue learning about in order to find a way to move forward, even once they get back to their own time. So let's jump right into my favorite parts about the story. And the first that I'm going to go to is Shane, who is the future son of John Johns and Kendra, otherwise known as Hawkgirl. Shane is great in the way that he is the first to tell them about what really is happening in this place and where the dangers might lie. And his ability as a psychic and telekinetic presence is really impressive. And his willingness to move past fear and take risk and put himself potentially in danger in order to undo this horrible evil that he feels only the Justice League can stop is a really impressive note. And it's a nice bit of hope against the challenge that's presented against Batman, where he is shown exactly where Superman is, and that he has the power to control the suns where Superman exists. If he moves them too far away, Superman will die. If he moves them close, Superman will escape. But the World Forger has presented the question of the future in a way that Superman's escape means the end of the bright future that the Justice League is currently experiencing now. If Superman dies, it can come true. And if he lives, 
then all of this will repeat again, and the Justice League itself is doomed. That one I'm not going to give up a spoiler for, because in many ways, the question is not actually answered at the end, it's only presented for interpretation. And it's revealed through this process that Superman has made a final attempt. And after he does, he appears to fail and is falling back towards the planet he was jumping off of, or the moon or the rock. But it's not clear whether or not that failure was intentional by Batman or a ploy, or that his involvement are actually going to lead to the end of of Superman. Uh, That somehow Batman's actions will not lead to Superman's death, but instead find a way to make it appear as though he is either dead or so weak that he can't continue to make the attempt and will no longer be a concern for either the Wolf Forger or his desire to have Batman demonstrate his willingness to see this plan through. And it's important because in many ways, Batman is presented not only to the team, but also by the Wolf Forger as the only one with the sort of will to do what must be done when hard decisions have to be made. The other part that I really like about the storytelling is when Shane helps the Justice League break out of their cells on the prison planet. They're rescued by a future version of the Legion of Doom, who look like a bunch of ragtag guerrilla fighters. Uh, From just a quick glance, it really appears as though Cheetah has uh, a patch on her eye. Um, (laughs) Grodd looks a bit war-torn, maybe with uh, some armor on and maybe something cybernetic. And it's just a quick glance at who the rest of the cast might be. Now, one part that I really thought was a lot of fun is when it's revealed who the pilot is. Dark side. <laughs> There's so many more enjoyable moments in this issue that I really hope you get a chance to experience, and I'm going to encourage you to do so, especially from a point of storytelling. When it comes to the visuals, I mean, the art side, it's so easy to point to so many pages where... The future is dark and bleak, and even the moments of light feel sterile and like a hospital. And that's just not pleasant at all. Uh, The red hues on the prison planet uh, are a great contrast to the one or two moments when we get to see Batman in the bright new future, with the sunshine and everything looking um, organic and lovely and spacious, but also appearing to be like the tower floating above everything else, the real world, which in many ways might be less perfect or of a nirvana than it's initially presented. On my least favorite parts, when it comes to the story, I struggle just a little bit with this concept of placing Batman in the role as the only person who can make a hard decision. I do enjoy the fact that there's a great balance to who Batman is, and that there's always the question of when he's willing to forego the team for his own designs. But I also feel that that's something that's been played with so often, that while it's working great here, and I enjoy it, it just raises the question of what this challenge would be like if we had a character whose decision-making wasn't so well-known, so that the challenge or the suspense would lie more in the unknown than in the statistical will he, won't he, what's the ultimate play going to be. 
I feel in the end that placing it on Batman, he's already proven that he will do what he thinks is the best for the future for everyone based on his own code and, and ethos. And yet at the same time, he doesn't do that to kill. So I don't think that there's any way he's going to doom Superman to death. But I think the revelation of his actions could create a schism within the team or within his relationship to Superman should it ever come about. Also a chance in my mind that Superman knows who's behind a lot of the decision making in all this. And that he's just doing what he always does because he knows how things in his mind will work out. After all, they've survived the dark multiverse. Maybe they can overcome anything. But I would have liked to have seen maybe a different character put in this decision-making role and to see how that would have changed the story. On the art side, overall, I enjoyed so many parts that the only challenge I really faced as I continued to flip through the pages is that for all of the dark, there was very little of the bright contrast. And those moments when it did exist really felt so few and far between that it's hard to believe that there's any way out. Now, I know that might be part of the intention of the storytelling, but it also seems to lend to this very uh, confusing and somber period for the DC universe as a whole as it confronts this idea of the source wall being broken and changes to the universe that are essentially something that, well, have really been only hinted at and whose eventuality will no doubt provide um, a through line that, that brings us to that point where we can see kind of the long game but also, in some moments, I worry that this book and these stories could come too close to uh, the new 52 book, Earth 2, in which, at some point, there was just no way out. And it was about the heroes facing an overwhelming force and the eventuality of their demise. Moments like that make it difficult to keep reading a book if there's the thought that you're just reading the story of something ending. And while that's worked for some titles, in this part, unless that's the intention, the challenge then is, well, is this even going to be a team I'm going to enjoy reading about once they get through all this? I think so, but at moments in the art, it becomes a little bit difficult to not feel like you just need a breather from the the imagery and to sort of go, okay, we've been in this sort of dingy place for a little bit now. Um, are we staying here? And when can I check back in? And much like I've mentioned earlier, the moment there's that disengagement for the reader and for the storytelling, there's a challenge at play because now it's a question of, what are you coming back with and what kind of intention and attention will be given and will there be unnecessary expectations the kind that can shade the way the story looks from that point on for all of this this was a solid four in my book and i was happy to make it my fifth choice for the spinner wreck and that brings to a conclusion episode number seven of the dc comics news spinner wreck I've been your host, Seth Singleton. You can find me out there at DC Comics News, writing reviews, or hanging out with the podcast team. And I'd like to remind you, as always, that DC Comics News 
is available on all the major podcast platforms. That includes the Spinner Rack and the weekly DC Comics News podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. So please head over and subscribe to the podcast and rate and review. I like five stars, and I can't wait to hear your comments. You can also reach out to us and send us messages, tag us in things, or just say hi on social media, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, or YouTube. Just use at DC Comics News, and we'll know you're out there. Thanks again for checking in. Join me next week for a new edition of the DC Comics News Spinner Rack, coming to you right here from the DC Comics News Podcast. Have a great week, and as always, read more comics.